Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Danny Gear, filling in for Ben Kiefer. When people talk about climate action, the focus is often reducing air emissions, working to minimize global warming. But climatologists say there is a climate lag of about 40 years. This means we are experiencing the impacts of emissions from 40 years ago. This also means if all greenhouse emissions went away tomorrow, the impacts could continue for decades. That's part of the reason Rob Verchik, a climate legal scholar who worked on climate resilience policies in the Obama administration, makes an argument for making our current climate reality livable. That's the topic of his new book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. He'll soon be a guest of the University of Iowa College of Law as part of the Hubble Environmental Law Initiative. He'll give a talk at 1245 on February 23rd in the Boyd Law Building. We recorded a conversation earlier this week. Rob, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Danny. Thanks so much. Now, the title of this book definitely grabs attention. I'd love to give people context into exactly how this octopus got into the parking garage. But let, first, let's hear a bit from your book. Um, can you give a give us a taste of it? Sure. And then I'm, I'm, I'll reveal the answer uh, as I read it. Okay. <laughs> In the parking garage of the Mirador 1000 condominium complex, days after a bronze supermoon had swallowed Miami's night sky, there were two signs that things had not yet returned to normal. One was the green pool of water that sloshed around the tires of about a dozen stranded cars. The other was the tentacles. The source of the pool was a fountain of water bubbling loudly from a corroded flood drain. Its eddies shimmered in the building's artificial light. A few feet away, protruding just above the water surface, was the splayed form of an octopus, its rubbery limbs heaving against the cool cement. On the morning of November 14, 2016, when Miami resident Richard Conlon happened upon this site, he did what any of us would have done. He shot photos and a video with his phone and posted them on Facebook. The octopus in the parking garage went viral. OMG, it really is an octopus, commented one follower on social media. Was it alive? Asked another. Did it get back into the bay? What? Did you grill it? Came a third, attaching a sly-faced emoji. And from a fourth, how does an octopus get in a parking garage? As it turns out, the octopus was real and very much alive. Happily, it was spared the grill and probably did survive. Conlon reported in an updated post, later verified by the Miami Herald, that members of the building's security staff had quickly filled a bucket with salt water and transported the creature back to sea. They believe it got back safely, he wrote. But how the octopus got there is a longer tale of quirky plumbing and climate breakdown. The Mirador 1000 sits near the ocean, along with the parking facility and its accompanying drainage pipes. Those pipes, which feed runoff into the ocean, were built years ago and were originally suspended above Biscayne Bay. 
but sea levels are rising on account of climate change. And this, along with other human impacts on the bay, now leave many drainage pipes submerged and vulnerable to flooding at high tide. In the case of the Mirador 1000, a cycle of high tides known as a king tide was already in gear and had been further amplified by an unusually strong gravitational pull of the moon, which was at its point in its orbit that was most proximate to Earth, an event that we call a supermoon. The supermoon and the king tide in an environment already altered by sea level rise caused the storm drain to reverse and burp up a cephalopod. That's Rob Verchick reading a bit from his book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. Now, there's a number of uh, climate anecdotes that you could have gone with. Why did you, how did this one become the title of your book and the, the opening story for your book? Well, like many things, it's uh, it was it was unplanned. Um, I um, actually heard about this octopus uh, from a friend of mine who's a a law professor at Berkeley in California, and uh, he showed me the picture. He says, "What do you think about this?" We write a lot together, and and I said, "Well, we should write about this." And so we wrote an op-ed that we published in the Miami Herald, and after that, I um, I became just fascinated with all of the different kinds of problems um, that I thought we needed to start working on. And, and the octopus in the parking garage became a kind of, uh, you know, kind of a symbol or a metaphor. The other thing that was really important to me, I'll say, is that, I mean, this is a very serious topic, obviously. It's a very difficult challenge. But I didn't want to start with something that seemed too scary or remote. Um, you know, I could have started the book, as I've told some audiences, I could have, I could have started the book by writing about, um, you know, a, a town in California that was completely destroyed by wildfire. But that that would have sent a message and it would have been alarming, but it might have dissuaded or discouraged people from looking at it. So I thought, well, if we could talk about something that sticks in your head, but isn't terribly scary then maybe we can start talking a little bit about that issue and then gradually learn the more serious side of it and um, uh, and and resolve to do something about it is as opposed to just sort of sticking your head in the sand and saying uh, it, it's too, uh, you know, it, it's too discomforting for me to think about. Mm-hmm. And you look to animals as well as our um, evolutionary ancestors for stories of climate resilience. One um, species that you looked at was the um, spruce budworms, which I found fascinating how they adapt their reproduction year by year to give the forest time to replenish, to grow back for their hungry caterpillars. Um, Why did you include these climate adaption stories? How do these animal stories connect to our experiences, humans? Well, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, there's actually a, a chapter, the second chapter that actually looks at pre-humans or if you will, early human beings, you know, by about uh, uh, several hundred thousand years ago or a few million years ago. And, and, and one of the, I guess the themes there is that early human beings and all kinds of, of other uh, animal species have learned to adapt 
to changing environments and to changing climates. And, you know, in fact, um, our, our brains, our use of tools and fire and language and collaboration, all of those things we inherit from our genetics, and they all developed uh, because we were a species that was on the move, moving from very hot areas to eventually colder areas. And we were at a time uh, in which the climate was changing uh, a lot. Uh, on the planet. But let me be very, very clear. Um, those changes, although they were rapid in geological time, were not rapid in the sense of human time, right? And so it, those changes happened over millions and millions of years. We are seeing changes right now in our lifetimes that are much more substantial than, um, than what any previous species has ever seen. Um, the human race it has seen more climate change just in our lifetimes than the previous history of humanity. So uh, I wanted to do kind of two things. This one to show, hey, look, um, species, including the human species, can adapt and, and we can change our culture and have changed our culture in many ways uh, you know, with the dawn of uh, all kinds of technologies and things. So we can do this it's a collective action issue um, that, that we are have to address. Uh, but the second thing I wanted to point out too is that the changes that we see really are completely different. Um, they and they require a a different type of commitment to human uh, by by human beings and and human society. Um, let's go back a bit. How do you define climate resilience? How does it differ from our other climate action? Well, there are essentially, as I say, there are two things um, to oversimplify that we have to do in the face of climate breakdown. Uh, one is we have to reduce greenhouse gases, that is carbon pollution, and uh, there are a lot of ways we can do that with renewable energy sources and so on. And a lot of people write about those things, and I'm glad they are. That's job one. There's another job one, <laughs> and that job is to adapt to the climate changes that we are not going to be able to avoid. Um, we have to do both of those things at the same time. I mean, as you point out, um, the uh, uh, there's a lag time. I mean, even if we were to shut down the lights today all around the world, uh, we would still have 50 to 100 years worth of, of heating, global heating. Uh, part of that has to do with the ocean. The ocean just holds all this heat. It's like a hot water bottle, and it takes a long, long time for it to cool. And um, and so we need to do something for the people that are here now and for the people that are going to be here in the next 50 to 100 years. Um, they're not going to be able to wait uh, for for climate change uh, to, to you know cool down by, by reducing fossil fuels. We need to reduce those fossil fuels. There's no other way we're gonna be able to survive long-term, uh, but adapting and preparing uh, buys us time. And that means that we need to have uh, laws and policies that look forward, that say, okay, what is climate change going to look like in the next 20 years, 30 years, and so on? They need to be flexible and we need uh, systems in place that are really fair because uh, there are going to be huge inequalities in terms of uh, the populations of people who bear the brunt of this problem. And we need to attend to that as well. 
Well, we need to take a quick break. I'm speaking with Rob Verchik, a climate legal scholar and author of The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. We'll be back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. I'd ask my friends to come and see. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. Green thumbs, gardening novices, and plant lovers are all welcome. IPR's Garden Variety Newsletter brings the gardening community to your inbox. Subscribe today and join us at IPR.org slash GV. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Danny Gear filling in for Ben Kiefer. I'm speaking with Rob Verchik, a climate legal scholar who worked on climate resilience policies in the Obama administration. He's also the author of The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. Um, we were just talking about what is climate resilience, what, how, what part that fills in the climate movement. And you had mentioned that inequality is an important part of the story. It's an important thing that needs to be a part of this discussion. Tell me a bit about who is going to be most impacted by the impacts of climate change. Sure. Well, in in the United States, we're all going to be affected, uh, but some of us are going to be able to buffer ourselves in certain ways, right? And so if you you think about a, a, a supercharged storm or some of the flooding that uh, that you've seen in Iowa in the in the beginning of this century already. That's been almost unprecedented. Um, if you've got insurance, if you've got uh, a big property that that you can um, protect against floods, uh, or if you have uh, you know money in, in a situation where you can evacuate and move your livestock out if you're holding livestock, whatever it is in some of these rural counties, um, all of those things that you, you might be able to buffer yourself from if you have more money. If if you if you don't, uh, or you don't have uh, the levers of power in politics, it, it's going to be harder for you, right? If you don't have a savings account so that you can evacuate somewhere and, and get a hotel, you know, immediately, um, you might be living in an area that's more prone to floods because that is connected to property value and affordability. Um, we're also, you know, in in Iowa, as in many states, there are going to be more heat waves. Um, more heat stress. And I mentioned that because more people die of heat waves in the United States than any other kind of weather-related mishap or disaster uh, by a long shot. And they uh, notoriously affect uh, people of lower income and and people uh, uh, African-American populations and Latino populations. 
Uh, part of that is is about where people live because people who live in uh, areas with lower land values don't have a tree cover or and uh, and pools and and things like that that keep us cool. Uh, also, many people who work outside, whether it's in agriculture, for instance, or uh, construction, people who work outside are much more at risk. And uh, and so, if you you know think about floods, think about fires, think about heat waves, uh, and, and the people who are more exposed to those sorts of things, uh, you easily get to see that this becomes a real public health issue and and an income inequality issue. Right. And we've covered on this program that Iowa is a part of an extreme heat belt. Yes. And our homes aren't ready for the the heat that they're projecting over the next 30 years. Will we be able to prepare for this with good policy or is there a limit to climate resilience? Well, there is a limit to climate resilience, which is why that we need to work really hard to bring down carbon pollution. But there are so many things um, that can be done. Some of them, you know, what I think of is, is, is low hanging fruit. And so like Iowa, for instance, I mean, the big things in Iowa to, to be uh, looking at uh, from what uh, you know, our, our scientists tell us is first, there's gonna be a lot more precipitation. We've already observed um, precipitation rising by, you know, this is rain, right? <laughs> rising by more than 10% or so. And in, in, the, in the next uh, century, um, you're going to see 20 to 50% increases in stream flow, for instance. And so that means a lot more flooding. And so what could one do about that? Well, um, communities all throughout Iowa should have better storm plans and flood plans. And uh, in looking at where things are built and how things are built, uh, communities should start looking at the projections of future stream and river flow rather than the history of past stream and river flow. So those are some of the things that can be done. Uh, changes in insurance. Uh, you know, it, it, at the household level, um, people could be thinking about, hey, we need to have, um, a you know, as we say, a rainy day fund, a fund uh, in your own savings account. Well, what happened? You know, should you budget in maybe an evacuation each year? Uh, should you budget in uh, more for insurance, home homeowners insurance, because that is going to be increasing. Um, how do you, uh, you know, protect against these types of uh, of things, which which we know are going to happen, but aren't built into our systems of planning yet? Your work has intersected with Iowa before. You worked on Obama's climate change adaption task force, specifically looking at uh, flooding. Um, can you tell me a bit about the the work you did here? Sure. And, and part of th that work is what's, you know, uh, what's given me this this insight into, into some of the things going on in Iowa. But uh, we were when I was at the, at, at the EPA, we were uh, working on a program that the president launched um, where agencies, federal agencies were, were helping states become more resilient in the face of climate change. And uh, EPA had had already been working with folks in in. Um, uh, in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids because of uh, the 2008 Midwest floods. So we knew that there was a lot of rebuilding at the time. This was in 2009, 2010 that was going on. And we thought, well, what a better time to, to prepare for, uh, for uh, new impacts. Uh, it, it, a good time for, to do that is when you're rebuilding. 
And so we worked with FEMA, the, the, the federal agency in charge of, of, of helping communities rebuild. And we also worked with um, the Department of Agriculture, which actually does a lot of funding for construction in, in rural uh, areas, uh, particularly, you know, agricultural. And, um, and, and we helped those agencies by providing more information about the future um, expectations of flooding. And then the most important thing is we, um, we sent uh, various groups for, you know, a year or two to basically live in Iowa and to get to know um, the city planners and the people working in, in those areas. And we met with farmers. And, uh, and, and what the message was is we wanted to provide more information to local communities about what, what the predictions of flooding look like in the future so that they could plan for the future as opposed to planning for something in the past. Right. Because, um, I mean, you talk about in your book that moving away from flood-prone areas doesn't seem like an option that people take and doesn't seem like a, it, it doesn't seem like a viable option for people. So it seems like the way forward is these flood prevention policies, putting in more flood infrastructure. Yes. Yeah, so, sometimes you have to move, right? And we are going to see people on the coast and in various uh, river riverine areas um, you know, people will be moving. But the fact is, um, there are a lot of people who can't afford to move. And, and there are a lot of reasons to stay in particular areas. And, and I think that if you can, uh, if you can buffer yourself, if a community can buffer itself from these problems, that sometimes it, it needs to, to look in, into doing that. Some of the these changes, these adjustments are are not beyond uh, cost. I mean, you know, they're things that, that can be done. What we do know is that doing nothing is very costly. Uh, we have uh, data right now, there's studies that show that if we don't, we as a society, as a country, if we don't adapt to climate change, we are gonna be losing um, about a half a trillion dollars every year by the end of the century. Uh, basically in in the cost of disaster. And now we're sort of seeing this cost with legal battles as well to different um, municipalities. I mean, last year a judge ruled in favor of a group of young people who sued the state of Montana for not considering climate change when approving fossil fuels projects. Um, there was more recently a, a defamation case uh, that a U.S. climate scientist won against two conservative commentators. But um, there's also uh, lawsuits uh, from insurance companies against cities for not doing enough. Where do these lawsuits play into, I guess, a way forward for the, the climate movement? Well, one thing they show is that there, uh, th there's a lack of planning and preparation right now um, in addressing climate change. And so we do, we have uh, states and municipalities in some cases that have brought lawsuits against oil and gas companies or against uh, utilities that are burning fossil fuels. And what they're essentially seeking, what they're saying is, hey, we have harms because of climate change, whether it's erosion on the coast or whether it's the need to build new bridges and highways. 
Um, so we have all of these costs and losses and nowhere to seek compensation. Um, and so there have been lawsuits against, as I said, some of these uh, industries as a way of, of trying to get more money to protect people. Um, and uh, you have uh, other issues like the Our Children's Trust cases, these, these ca the, the, the case that you talk about in Montana, which was actually grounded in a provision of, this, of the state of Montana's constitution, um, which, uh, which guarantees a clean and healthful environment. And the, and the, and the court in that case basically said, um, it, what was really interesting, there was a whole trial. So experts were brought in, you know, swore on the Bible, the whole thing, and they had experts on all sides. And what the court found out was that, hey, it's actually economically feasible to replace 80% of all the fossil fuel energy by 2030. And by 2050, it's possible to do 100%. And then it found out that if you did that, you would save $21 billion by 2050. Uh, that's a court of law finding the facts there and saying, basically, you know, if, if you can save $21 billion in climate costs, then you should do it. Um, so one of the things that's happening, uh, you know, you're not going to have a single lawsuit that's going to solve everyone's problems, but you are ha using, we are seeing these lawsuits as helping to educate people, I think, and to get information out there um, so that uh, so that cities and states can see that there might be a way forward. I think ultimately what we really need is um, is more uh, action, you know, uh, action from legislatures, whether it's city councils or state legislatures or the federal government. Um, what we need to do is hold our own elected officials accountable. I think that's the best way to resolve some of these issues. Mm -hmm. And something standing in the way of of that way forward is the politicization of this issue. How have you seen the political side of climate change change? Oh, I, I think that is so much a part of this story. And it is really so destructive. Um, I, you know, I notice I, I teach in, in the law school, I, I teach students, many of whom are in their 20s or so on. And some of them are surprised to learn that, hey, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, um, Republicans and Democrats were both on record uh, being in favor of, of addressing climate change issues. Um, and somewhere in there, it became very politicized. One of the things that happened is the oil and gas industry made a strategic choice um, to, to politicize the issue. Um, and they, to, to, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, oil and gas companies uh, supported uh, uh, um, candidates, both Democrat and, and, and Republican. And now that's really changed. They basically said, we're going to try to you know, make this a Republican or a Democrat issue or a conservative or a, a liberal issue. Uh, when, when it, you know, I mean, safe public safety is, it shouldn't be that, but, but, but now it is. And, um, you know, you mentioned this case, this uh, uh, defamation case from a climate scientist, Michael Mann, uh, who's awarded a million dollars in damages uh, from some uh, conservative writers um, who, they didn't just question his science, uh, uh, which was perfect. I mean, his his science was was very well done, and the jury found that it was true. But uh, you know, these are journalists who 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 basically uh, said that he had 
mismanaged his science and then and then equated him with a um, with a sexual abuser of children. You know, I mean, it's just that kind of talk is just so destructive um, to the situation, and um, and it makes it, it makes talking about climate much harder. And and so I'll just say one of the things I'm trying to do in my book is make talking about climate more comfortable. Um, not because I, I I necessarily think you know, we all need to just just not feel that it's serious. It's extremely serious. But um, but people don't talk about climate change very much, in, in part because I think they're afraid of this politicization. And my message is, you know, at, at bottom, talking about climate change, it's not about talking about a new world order. I mean, what I'm talking about is just trying to protect the value of your home, trying to protect your family from uh, being in distress. Um, trying to protect your health. And if we start seeing it in that way, I, I, I think that it's it's easier to imagine how we might be able to make progress in this area, even at a small scale, at a community level, right? We don't need to be in favor of world government. We just we just have to be in favor of of protecting one another. How do you recommend people take action? Where do we move from move forward from here? Well, what I say is, and this has been my own journey too, right? I'm an environmental law professor, and I started out um, thinking only about reducing carbon pollution, which we need to do. But climate affects everything. And so what I would suggest um, is, is think about the things that you like doing or that you're very interested in. You might be really interested in fishing. And if you're really interested in fishing, then you can ask yourself, how is climate change going to affect fishing for me? You can learn about that. You can talk to other people who, uh, who you fish with. And you can ask yourself, okay, so how is climate going to affect that? And what are things that I or people in my community or the people that I vote for could do to make things better in a particular way? So I tell my, I, I tell, you know, uh, my listeners, Look, you know, you might decide to join a climate change club. That would be great. But not everybody's going to want to do that. But you might already belong to clubs for which climate change is res- is relevant in some way. And so you should, um, you know, take your hobby, take the thing that you're passionate about and learn how climate change is going to affect it, because I guarantee it will. And then the next move is to think, OK, what can I do about that thing? Rob Verchek, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. That was Robert Verchik, a climate legal scholar and author of The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. He'll give a talk at the University of Iowa Boyd Law Building at 1245 on Friday. After a short break, do you have student loans? Well, we'll listen back to a conversation on Biden's student debt relief program, as well as hear some advice for borrowers. Stay tuned. I'm Danny Gear. It's River to River from IPR News. Powered by Iowans and empowered to tell Iowa's story. IPR is where news, music, and culture meet. Thank you for listening and supporting your local NPR network station. Back with more River to River, I'm Danny Gear filling in for Ben Kiefer. 
For the rest of the hour, we'll listen back to a conversation from July of last year. At the time, hundreds of thousands of student loan borrowers received emails that their debts would be automatically erased. This was related to existing income-driven payment programs. The Biden administration also launched its SAVE plan this past summer that stands for Saving for a Valuable Education. This week, 153,000 borrowers were completely forgiven as part of that plan. This amounts to $1.2 billion in student loan debt and targeted those who borrowed less than $12,000 and have been making payments for at least a decade. Here's a conversation Ben had with Betsy Mayotte, the president and founder of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. Start off, if you could, by telling us a little bit about your institute, how you came to found it. Sure. So uh, I've been working in the student loan industry in a compliance and advocacy role, feels like since the earth cooled, but for over 25 years. Um, And I came to the conclusion that borrowers were looking for and needed a neutral expert third party to be able to go to to get counseling. So I left my job of 18 years. Um, We actually just had a five-year anniversary and founded TISA um, five years ago. And, you know, our volumes doubled every year since our virtual doors have been opened. We we put plain language information about student loans on our website, and then if people need more help, they can email us, and we're happy to counsel them. Okay. Quickly, how does it work? Uh, Who can get help, and how do we contact you? Everybody can. Anybody with a student loan, we're happy to help. It's always free. That's the reason we exist is to provide this free advice via email. So um, listeners can go to our website, which is freestudentloanadvice.org. Check out the information we have on the site. If we did our job right, that might answer your question right off the bat. But if you need some more help, you can go to our contact page and use the TISLA email. And we try to answer most questions within a business day. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, hundreds of thousands of borrowers have been getting emails from the U.S. Department of Education notifying them that their debts will soon be automatically erased, an erasure of some nearly $40 billion, uh, 800,000 borrowers affected here. Tell us the story behind this. Uh, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah, so this was this was awesome. It's something we've known was coming for about a year, but this is sort of the first batch that's going out. So essentially, since 1994, there have been these programs that, as an umbrella term, we call income-driven repayment plans. Uh, Today, there's about five of those. Um, They're all exactly the same, except where they're different. Um, And part of what makes that that they all have in common is that if you're on one of those plans for either 20 or 25 years, and there's still a balance on your loan, the government is going to forgive that balance. So what the Biden administration has done is they took a look at the people that were enrolled in these income-driven plans and came to the conclusion that maybe more people should have been enrolled in the plans, and maybe if they'd gotten some better advice along the way, they would have been enrolled in the plans for a longer amount of time. So what this sort of one-time waiver is doing is it's giving all eligible federal student loan borrowers credit for every month they've been in repayment, regardless of whether they were actually on an income-driven plan or not. So what that means is for borrowers who have been in repayment for 20 or 25 years already, even if they've never been on one of these special plans, 
uh, they're going to get immediate forgiveness. Mm. And even for borrowers who have not been in repayment for that long, they're going to get some months or in some cases years or in some cases more than 10 years of credit um, added to sort of their account. So if going forward they get on an income-driven plan, they might be closer to potential forgiveness than they normally would have been. If someone listening has student debt, they haven't received an email from the U.S. Department of Education, what should they do to find out if they're eligible and possibly have some of their debt or all of it erased? Nothing. Um, They should do nothing except put their patient's pants on. Um, (laughs) Essentially, if if your loans have been eligible for the COVID pause, meaning you haven't been due for a payment since March of 2020 and you're currently enjoying a 0% interest rate, your loans are going to get this adjustment. It may not result in immediate forgiveness, but it's going to get, you know, again, depending on how long you've been in repayment, but you will get the adjustment. There's no application for it. Um, The adjustment's going to take time. They're initially focusing on the borrowers where the adjustment will result in immediate forgiveness. So those are the people that got that magic email uh, a week or so ago. Um, But if you didn't get an email, like I said, just sit tight. Our understanding is they're going to be doing this in batches around every two months, and they've got 40 million accounts they've got to look at here. So we don't think they're going to be done until the middle or end of of next year. Hmm. Are there other types of debt forgiveness that you give advice on? All kinds. There's actually over 100... Um, student loan forgiveness programs that we know of. Uh, We have a database on our website under the resources section that we update twice a year that lists all of those forgiveness programs. But the most common one that we get asked about is another federal program called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. And under PSLF, if a borrower works for either an eligible nonprofit, which any 501c3 is considered eligible, and then there's some other non-501c3s that are also eligible, or they work for a government employer that can be federal, state, local, even tribal, and they're on one of these income-driven plans that we talked about a minute ago, they get their balance forgiven in 10 years rather than the 20 or 25. Uh, There's a question from Lisa, one of our listeners, uh, in this email. Uh, I'll just read it. I'm unaware of what she's zeroing in on here. Is there any help for PLUS loans? Lisa asks. I had to to have a cosigner and have been paying on them for close to 20 years. If I pay extra instead of putting it toward the principal, they just reduce the amount of the next payment. Aspire is the servicing center. Um, Anything to say to Lisa there? Yeah, so I'm not clear if she has a parent PLUS loan or a graduate PLUS loan. But all the things that I've already talked about whether it's a graduate plus loan or a parent plus loan, they're both eligible. They're eligible for the adjustment. They're eligible for um, the income-driven plans. They're potentially eligible for public service loan forgiveness if your listener happens to work for an employer like I mentioned before. The only thing that gives me pause is her servicer. That tells me that she might have what, what we um, loan under an older loan program called the Federal Family Education Loan Program. If she does, and Aspire will be able to tell her if she doesn't know for sure, she will have to consolidate before the end of this year in order to get access to that adjustment and so on. And she can do that at studentaid.gov. 
Okay, but let's talk a little bit about repaying debts. So what is your advice there? Do you have do's and don'ts uh, when it comes to paying student debt? Of course, pay it um, if you can't get any debt forgiveness. What are the other things should we remember in the repayment category? Oh, there's all kinds of things. I think one of the the first thing I want to mention, just sort of a broad statement that really applies to everybody, especially lately, we're, we're get, we get so caught up in the word forgiveness that we lose sight of what the actual goal is. The name of the game is paying the least amount over time out of pocket. And for sure, for some people, that means pursuing one of these loan forgiveness programs. But for other people, it means paying your loans off aggressively uh, to reduce total interest costs. In general, and this is a very general statement, if you haven't been in repayment for very long and your income is higher than your loan balance, chances are paying your loans off aggressively is going to be what means, you know, result in you paying the least amount over time. Um, thankfully, we've got some great tools out there to help you run the numbers. Uh, studentaid.gov uh, and our website, freestudentloanadvice.org, both have calculators that let you punch your information one time, and it'll show you not only what your monthly payment will be under all the plans, but it'll estimate the total you'll pay out of pocket over time and whether you might end up with some forgiveness or not. Some other advice I have for people is uh, educate yourself about your loans. The people that I find that are most successful in paying the least amount over time are the people that read all the things. Um, and instead of just sort of setting their payment and forgetting it, they reevaluate their loan strategy either every time they get a raise or maybe at tax time when they already have their financial information in front of them. Um, especially going into what we're calling repayment restart. So, uh, you know, people are going to be due for payment again after not having been due for three or three and a half years. People need to make sure they know where their loans are. Something like 17 million accounts change servicers during the pause. So it's important to make sure you know who your servicer is and that they have all your up-to-date contact information so you don't miss any of the important deadlines. Um, I could go on for another two and a half hours, but I'm going to take a breath <laughs> and see what other questions you have for me. Let's talk about disputes. You help people who have disputes with student loans. Does that happen? It does. Um, and there's all kinds of levels of disputes, you know, sort of at the lower level, the solution is really just explaining uh, what the federal regulations are. It's more, it's less of a dispute and more of a miscommunication or misunderstanding of what the laws around student loans are. Going up from there, um, sometimes what that means is us uh, helping the borrower understand what their best path to dispute resolution is. Should they be escalating it within the servicer? Should they be filing a complaint with the Department of Education Student Loan Ombudsman, or even the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, um, or even with their Attorney General's office. And then beyond that, if it's a really complicated, sort of student loan nerdy type of situation, we'll ask them for a third-party authorization, and we'll actually step in on their behalf. Mm -hmm. How are you funded? You say it's a free service to, to anyone with student, de with student debt. Uh, how are you funded? So we, we are also a 501c3, so we do accept donations, although I don't push them with consumers. I don't ever want a consumer to think they have to donate to get a certain level of service from us because that's certainly not the case. Uh, but we do accept donations, and we also apply for grants. 
And finally, we have developed some services that we do take a fee from, but never, again, never from consumers. So we work with like associations, um, employers to provide proactive student loan education uh, to whoever their constituency is. So for example, we have quite a few um, employer clients that have hired us to supply um, sort of PS, public service loan forgiveness handholding, a program we call PSLF Peace of Mind, to their employees and to help the employer mm. use PSLF as a benefit. So that's kind mm. of a win-win. It funds us, but it also helps us help more borrowers. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's take a step before taking on debt to ask you what a person should consider before uh, taking on that debt to pursue higher, higher education. I imagine you run into a lot of uh, people in debt who, uh, could they get in a time machine and go back, they would have said, that's just not something I should have done. We do get that a lot. So I love the question, though. Um, so the sad part about the state of higher education today is that the days of education for education's sake, unfortunately, are gone. And today, the college decision is an ROI decision. It's a return on investment decision, unfortunately. But So, you know, I, I wish more families would look at that decision in that way and be mindful of the total amount of debt that may result from whatever college they're looking at. So look at, you know, how much you're going to have to borrow the first year. Multiply that by five. I say by five for a couple reasons. One, 70% of students change majors or schools at some point during their undergraduate, which generally results in it taking a little extra time to finish. And number two, tuition and expenses go up over the four years. The other thing I'd really like families to do is once they figure out what that number is, Let's say that number is $100,000 in debt. Hundred, I don't care how financially savvy you are. The number 100000 is not as meaningful as the actual monthly payment turns out to be. So look at what that monthly payment is going to be. So for hundred grand, you are looking at right around $1,200 a month every month for 10 years. Is that something mm -hmm. that's going to fit your future budget? Is that something you can stomach? Um, and there are ways to lower the debt levels attending a, a lower price school for the first two years and transferring into the dream school, going part-time, taking a little longer to get your degree, but again, accruing less debt in the process. A quick word before we go about scams. They are out there in this area as well, aren't they? Oh, yes. It's actually another reason I started Tisla is to try to be a little bit of a Batman against those scams. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration has really done some amazing and impactful things over the last couple of years for borrowers. But unfortunately, that also creates a really easy narrative and hook for these student loan scams. So if it sounds too good to be true, uh, question it. Um, no one should ever have to pay for student loan advice. And you certainly do not have to pay to get access to things like this one-time adjustment, public service loan forgiveness, consolidation, and so on. All right. Uh, that's about all the time we have. Betsy, uh, tell us once again how those with questions about student loan uh, debts uh, and um, and so forth can get in touch with you uh, to get their answers answers for free. Uh, absolutely. Our website is freestudentloanadvice.org. Um, I recommend people check out the 
the content that we have there to see. We have a lot of FAQ sections and tools. And then if they mm-hmm. still need help, they can go to the contact page and use the TISLA email to ask their questions. You've been listening to a conversation from July of last year with Betsy Mayotte, the president and founder of the Institute of Student Loan Advisors. River to River is produced by myself, Caitlin Troutman, and Sam McIntosh, with help from Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. Tonight, you should join us at Big Grove Brewery in Cedar Rapids for Pints and Politics, starting at 6 p.m., Hosted by the Gazette, enjoy food and drinks while listening to a lively discussion of national, state, and local politics. Again, that's at 6 p.m. at Big Grove Brewery in Cedar Rapids. I'm Danny Gear, filling in for Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining. Get back.